from the Guinness Virgin and 91.1 WZBT Gettysburg. I'm Ben Ponce and this is On Target. I'm Gary Mangala and today on Target we will be discussing conflagration, consternation, and celebration. Then we'll sit down with Kathy Bradley, the Executive Director of Health and Counseling Services at Gettysburg College. Stay with us. All right, let's get into it. You're so mean. <laughs> I get that a lot. Uh, so, conflagration, consternation, and celebration, indeed. Let's start with the conflagration. Uh, fire. Yeah, yeah, fire. Uh, I was walking to Bullet from my house at, like, I want to say 11.50, and I saw... And this was... We're recording this Friday. This all this all went down on Thursday. Was that just yesterday? It was yesterday, yeah. yeah. So on Thursday. Um, and I was walking, and I was passing the road that leads to Constitution Law and an undercover GPD, Gettysburg Borough Police, um, officer turned on their sirens and started driving down. Could be a different reason. I don't know. And then I got word that a bullet or just the entire cub really had uh, evacuated. Oh, we go up and realize that there had been a small fire. And then slowly but surely we figured it out that um, uh, the Center for Religious Life, I think is what it's called, um, had been holding a panel on religion and violence and had had catering from Servo that had those little fire candle things underneath the food. And one of them had uh, set a blaze in Cub 230, which is a very small room um, for this to happen. So the entire like west side of the upstairs of Cub was um, uh, closed for a little bit so that some firefighters could clear it all out. Yeah, there were some fire trucks. Some, yeah. You know, the fire department actually responded. This wasn't just a quick extinguish with a fire yeah, extinguisher yeah. situation. Uh, you know, it's not the first time recently, this academic year, there's been a fire caused by those uh, catering dishes with the, the sterno candles. Sterno candles, that's what they're called. Wait, there was yeah. another one? Well, our pal, friend of the Gettysburg, and Jack Ryan, was oh, telling me no. <laughs> that uh, he himself had to use, I think it was a fire extinguisher, to extinguish a blaze uh, caused by one of those things during, I think he said it was in December. Uh, perhaps, I think it had to do with the Greek evaluation panels, <laughs> which apparently were such a dumpster fire that there was a fire. Oh, God. Not is in that, a dumpster. But that, that one didn't result in the deployment of actual police because you know jack ryan with a fire extinguisher took yeah. care of that is that what you kept asking me like you're sure the fire department came yeah i wanted to make sure that this was an actual because if we were gonna say the other time the cub has caught on fire was a bit of a bigger deal that yeah. was the summer not this past summer but the summer before i think I don't remember. I don't think I was on campus for it. Maybe it was two summers. I guess, no, it was two yeah. summers ago. It was when the construction of the Cub was underway. Mm -hmm. uh, it was the old part of the Cub that was going to get demolished anyway. So, you know, that, that kind of worked out in the long run, I suppose. But, yeah, you know, that seems to be a bit of a fire-prone building. Yeah, it seems like. I think it's because there's so many things that go on in there that it's just bound to happen. Also, like, a lot of food things happen there mm -hmm. um but in other news the panel will be rescheduled um they were thinking about just having it anyway but then when that side of the building was closed they're like you know what just gonna postpone yeah maybe panel it's better. on religion and violence that went up in flames yeah 
the jokes write themselves. Yeah, they really do. Okay, so that's the conflagration. Let's move on to the consternation. And of course, we're referring to consternation over the burgeoning coronavirus. Of course. <laughs> so there's been a campus-wide update that was sent, mm -hmm. finally, uh, earlier this week uh, that essentially said that if you're traveling... No college travel can happen to any countries with a level three travel warning, which as of today, I believe still are the Wuhan province of China. I don't know if it's the whole country of China. I think it's just part, uh, but as well as Iran, where I don't think too many Americans are traveling, uh, and perhaps most notably South Korea and Italy uh, mm -hmm. are, are two countries that uh, maybe people were, were planning to go to. I know we have at least one student who is from South Korea. I assume there are more. Uh, and there are some students, four students to be exact, who were studying abroad in Rome uh, who were either required to sign another waiver saying that they acknowledge the risks of of, uh, yeah. of being in a country with a travel warning or come home and finish their abroad program online. As of today, Friday, we know that at least one of them is still there. We haven't made contact with three the other three still kind of working to see what the situation is there. There are students, other students uh, in in other adjacent Western European countries uh, that are receiving various guidance about, you know, what to do or not yeah. to do. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the the perhaps the biggest, I guess, advisory or, or notice in that campus-wide email was that if anyone on on a personal basis travels through any of those level three countries, uh, they have to self-quarantine for 14 days before they can return to campus. Um, now, the college has mandated that people register any personal travel to those countries. I have a little bit of a hard time seeing how they're going to enforce that with Students, I guess they could enforce that with employees a little bit. But, I mean, I think that the general concern, and, and now that there's the coronavirus kind of around, cases are, are popping up around the United States. Just today, Pennsylvania announced its first two cases, one in Delaware County, I think, and one in Wayne County. And then there's a school in Bucks County uh, that had students who came into contact with other people who were known to have had it. So there are five schools in, in the central oh, Bucks no. school district, <laughs> Bucks County, the fine folks that brought us Gary. Oh no, that's where I'm going home to tomorrow. <laughs> were closed. So five schools were closed today. Um, I don't think that they have identified any cases in Bucks County, um, but you know, we're going to have to quarantine Gary from the Gettysburg office. <laughs> Set her up with a satellite office, <laughs> uh, you know, just just uh, under a tree somewhere or something. Uh, we wouldn't want her in any buildings. Uh, but in any case, uh, where was I going with this? <laughs> Quarantining. Quarantining. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is there's now. Yeah. There are now cases around the United States such that the students leave campus to go to their various homes around uh, the United States and, and around the world, but particularly even just around the United States and then coming back, you figure spring breaks for colleges across the country, which mm -hmm. are, you know, about to happen in many cases could be, could be tricky and, and potentially problematic for, for the spread of this virus. Absolutely. And I think that part of, so I know that the CDC also, 
um, put out a recommendation to institutions to consider, you know, stopping abroad programs both in the summer but also like in the spring and the fall just like I think in general it's just being wary and where you can cancel things you should so a lot of spring break trips that have been college sponsored have been canceled including some to Latin America where there aren't really any cases yeah so um the Center for Public Service had three trips going over break one to the Dominican Republic one to Costa Rica and one to Puerto Rico and all three of them were canceled around 1 p.m yesterday um the Eisenhower Institute has canceled all of their um international trips there was one to Montenegro that was going to stop through Rome that Ben was going to be on through the Fielding Fellows uh, there was one to somewhere in the Middle East. There was, yeah, so there was a trip to Jordan and the United Arab Emirates. Yes. Uh, and then there was one to France, and all three of those have been canceled. Now students are still studying abroad in France. Yes, students are still studying abroad in France. I, I, I can understand that perhaps it's like the sentiment of like, well, this hasn't, we haven't had these kids go yet, so we can easily stop it. Also, it's much easier to you know, not have a spring break trip than to cancel something that will affect kids' Uh, students' graduation dates and things like that. Like, that's something to be thinking about because it's not like they could come back here and finish their academic semester out for a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, also a lot of programs are going online right now. So uh, Thea Tuchek, who's one of our writers uh, for The Get Us Virgin, is studying abroad in Japan right now, and she's right now on a temporary or what they've called a temporary online schooling. Um, so she's not going to classes. She's just doing her work online. And the same thing was happening for a lot of students from different institutions in different programs in Italy. Um, beyond that, some domestic trips have even been canceled. Um, the Center for Career Engagement was running a couple of trips. One to New York City that I was supposed to be on uh, got canceled after the first uh, case of coronavirus came through in New York. They also canceled or possibly postponed a trip to the University of Maryland Medical Center. That was for eight students. Um, And it seems like the college, I think specifically because they feel as though they have responsibility of these students. It's not just people of their free will going somewhere as college sponsored. And therefore, you feel as though you're safe, feel uh, a stronger responsibility to be um, ensuring the health and safety of their students, which I can, you know, I commend them for. And then beyond that, it's also the entire thing of like, well, we can stop these students from going on trips to New York. Uh, you know, these like 10 students who are going to go to New York are these like eight students that are going to go to the University of Maryland, but there's going to be people that are going to those areas anyway, when they're going home. I, I'm going home to Bucks County and they really, they know they can't stop me from doing that. And there's going to be students going to high risk areas, Washington, um, Florida, New York, and they're all going to be coming back. So, yeah, I can't really fault them for that, though. I know a lot of different program directors across the college are really upset that they have to cancel their trips. Yeah, and I mean, I think that in some cases, probably part of the deal with those career engagement trips has to do with employers that you were going to be meeting with, not, I mean, companies across the country have been restricting domestic travel, Yep. you know, to... So one of the places we were going to be going was the Facebook headquarters in New York, and they were stopping, like right now, they're... Em- employees aren't coming into the office mm-hmm. um, just because of, you know, like public transportation and things like that. Um, so that being said, you know, we were also losing a lot of the 
um, places that we were going to be going. You know, it wasn't it wasn't a case of like we're we're canceling because we don't want to meet with your students, but it's like we're canceling because we're not coming into the office, frankly. Um, and then beyond that, it's also it's not just going into an area like that. It's also being on public transportation um, and all of that. At the same time, though, I feel like there's also a very heightened sense of people being against the anxiety that corona is spreading. You know, I've read a lot about people saying, like, you know, keep in mind that the common flu still kills far more people than corona has. Um, Beyond that, there's been a lot of conversations about who should be wearing medical masks and who shouldn't. A lot of what I've been hearing is if you're in, you know, if you're caring for somebody or you're in the medical field, yes, you should wear a medical mask. If you're already sick, you should be wearing a medical mask. But like you or I who are not caring for someone who has coronavirus and are not currently sick of coronavirus should not be wearing a medical mask. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that the other thing that's interesting in the context of Gettysburg College specifically is that, uh, you know, there's been some chat, chatting and, and talk about the possibility of teleworking and those sorts mm-hmm. of things. And, and, and I don't think any of that's been implemented yet, but the, you know, we talked last week and, and, and where I was going to mention this is that some jobs you can do remotely. Yeah. But the lowest paying jobs are simultaneously the jobs that probably put people at the highest risk for coming into contact with viruses of all types. I'm thinking about food service and cleaning. Mm -hmm. uh, And those jobs obviously can't be done remotely. They're the lowest paid people. And they're the ones who are, you know, gonna likely still have to, to work. And good thing that Gettysburg College just uh, switched to a health insurance plan that mm-hmm. jacks up the deductible yep. to $2,000 a year. Just felt like we should probably mention that while we're talking about consternation. Uh, one other brief note of consternation, a, a, a double consternation special in our mm. in our three Cs. Yesterday at the faculty meeting, uh, the faculty returned to revisions to the faculty handbook for the third time about tenure and promotion processes. Uh, they finally did approve all three of the motions that came from the faculty personnel committee that theoretically did not actually alter the criteria for promotion. The The point of the most contention has been this motion that's theoretically has not actually changed what the required level of scholarship or, or research creative activity that one needs to get promoted from associate professor to full professor um, and so just so people are aware, there are three levels of tenure permanent faculty. There's assistant professor, which means one does not yet have tenure, but is on a track towards getting it. There's associate professor, which means someone has received tenure. And then after seven more years, you can be promoted from associate professor to full professor. And that comes with a pay bump. Um, and so all of this is to say that uh, there's been this long-standing perception that a high level of research output is necessary to get promoted from associate professor to full professor. Uh, the the faculty personnel committee has put in took out some language that said that to get promoted you need to have demonstrated a high level of maturity as a scholar uh, and to have published beyond what you did for associate professor for getting tenure. Uh, some folks wondered whether that means that the college is lowering its standards. Uh, ultimately, it wasn't entirely clear that they whether they were or they weren't, but the faculty went along with the revision anyway uh, by a pretty wide margin. So, you know, that's over now, too. 
Okay, so we've done conflagration, we've done consternation, and now for the ever-fun celebration, yesterday, the Gettysburgian uh, received, and this is this would be in self-congratulation celebration, <laughs> I suppose, uh, but we're going to do it anyway. Uh, the Gettysburgian received six Keystone Press Awards. They're now called Keystone Media Awards. They are administered annually by... The Pennsylvania News Media Association is a statewide competition of college and university newspapers from across the good old Commonwealth of PA. There are two four-year college divisions, one for colleges with more than 10,000 students, which is basically just Temple, Pitt, and uh, Penn State. And Temple usually cleans up. Well, they all there are so many categories, they all usually win about a third of them. Yeah. Uh, Penn State, actually multiple publications at Penn State enter things in this not just the Daily Collegiate, mm -hmm. their flagship paper. But in any case, uh, we compete, of course, in Division Two, which is colleges and universities of less than 10,000, uh, and won six awards, which, according to my little searching, was the second most of any of any institution. It's the most the Gettysburgians ever won by a not insignificant margin. The last two years have won three apiece, and it's not clear that any were won before that. Uh, but... Just to, to put a pin on that, first and second place for mm -hmm. ongoing news coverage. It's always nice to win first and second in the same category. But first, we won first place for ongoing news coverage of the Bob Garthwaite saga uh, that included his resignation and the college's subsequent process around mm -hmm. renaming policies. So that was first place. Second place was the uh, selection of Bob Uliano as our new president. So thanks, Bob, for you know, becoming the new president, so we had something to report on there. <laughs> uh, so that was first and second place for that. The website and social media won first place. Uh, and it's clear that that's the, the criteria there states that's about content more than design. Content and engagement are the, the two centerpieces of that. Uh, and then, uh, so we've had some, some quality content and some quality engagement. I know that there are different opinions about the design uh, of those things. We also have an app. Feel free to download the Gettysburgians app. That's what Gary is currently reading the press release mm -hmm. uh, in. Uh, and then also we won first place for layout in the magazine, uh, in particular a page that Lauren Hand, our, our magazine editor, designed as an infographic about student attitudes towards vaping. Uh, so congratulations to Lauren there, and, and it's kind of recognition for all of the magazine. Yeah. All into one thing. So those were the first place awards. We won second place for a music review of a, a Wind Symphony Symphony Orchestra concert in the fall. That you wrote. That I did, I guess. I think I'm going to start introducing myself as an award-winning music reviewer. Please don't. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm going to. I'm going to update my Twitter bio. It'll oh, be great. goodness. Uh, and and finally, we want honorable mention for a trio of editorials. Uh, so, yeah, in all 12 staff members' work, uh, 12 staff members contributed to the work that was recognized. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some, some good stuff there. Uh, and, and congratulations to all. Yeah, it's pretty great. Do you think you're going to go to the award ceremony? Oh, I think so. There's a glitzy, not very award ceremony <laughs> uh, at the end of a media conference up in, in the Harrisburg-Hershey area uh, that will occur in April. Get us some plaques, some yeah. uh, accoutrements, oh, and, God. Uh, you know, that'll be that. Yeah. 
So that's celebration. We've done conflagration, consternation, celebration, and there's some of all three of those things <laughs> in our next segment, which we'll be right back with the bullet report. And now it's time for the bullet. On February the 28th, the women's basketball team defeated Johns Hopkins 63-49. The wrestling team finished 16th out of 20 at the NCAA Division III Southeast Regional Championship. The men's track and field and the women's track and field team competed in the Centennial Conference Championships as individuals and as teams, but there was no team score. The softball team defeated Mary Washington 17-10 in its season opener. The women's lacrosse team defeated Denison 13-6 at the softball team, then lost in the second part of its doubleheader 6-5, also to Mary Washington. The women's basketball team lost to Haverford 49-46 in the Centennial Conference Championships, but their season is alive! They're opening the NCAA Tournament Division III later today. That's Friday. The men's lacrosse team defeated Stevenson 10 to 5. The men's track and field team finished 6th of 9 on the second day of the Centennial Conference Championship. The women finished 9 of 10 at the same event. That's winter track. Spring track is about to begin. The baseball team defeated Marymount, Virginia 12 to 2. That's the same team that the women's basketball team will be playing in the NCAA tournament later today. I don't know if they're the favorite or not, but they're there and they're ready to play. The softball team uh, was rained out against Shenandoah. The men's lacrosse team defeated York in overtime 7 to 6. The baseball team lost to Messiah 18 to 9. That's probably your conflagration, their celebration when the men's lacrosse team finishes uh, in overtime uh, with a big win, and then there's just general consternation at the rest. Thus endeth the bullet report. We'll be right back with Kathy Bradley. And we are pleased to be joined today by Dr. Kathy Bradley, the Executive Director of Health and Counseling Services. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. So why don't we just start with kind of the, the basic introductory question of how you how you got into college health and counseling services. Probably not a career path most people chart out from the beginning, I would no, guess. No, it's not <laughs> actually. It's not something I ever planned for, but it turns out I love it. Um, I had been working at a job in Boston and had to figure out what I wanted to do with my life and uh, whether I wanted to stay in Boston, which was very exciting, but uh, it was pretty intense life mm -hmm. to get up early and get into Boston. And uh, I decided I wanted a, a quality, quality of life was more important for me. So I had thought about whether I wanted to work at a college and I always loved the idea, but I knew I didn't want to teach. Mm -hmm. And so coincidentally, I saw an ad for a counseling center director at uh, a school that I had attended in Pennsylvania at Susquehanna University. And I thought, well, how hard can this be, right? And um, so I applied for it and I got the job and that's how I got into college counseling. And I found out it's hard. Yeah, <laughs> so, and you came to Gettysburg after that job, obviously? Yes, I kind of, um, oh, I can't think of the expression, but I, I um, what is it? Learned my chops through the work at Susquehanna yeah. and uh, learned a lot there and prepped me well for Gettysburg. And one of the focuses I know of, of the counseling center at Gettysburg, and, and, and this should, I suppose, not be a surprise given that it's a counseling center, is student mental health. And you presented at a faculty meeting in the fall yes. some, some, I'll go ahead and call them alarming statistics, uh -huh. I guess, about, as results of a student survey. Right. And one that, that stood out to, I think, many people in the room was about the number of student suicide attempts that, mm -hmm. that have occurred. Could you first maybe just kind of set the stage 
of the kind of the, the scope of the mental health challenges on the campus maybe that were gleaned from that survey? Well, I, I think there was probably nothing that we didn't know already, given mm -hmm. what we see, but we wanted to make sure that we weren't missing anything in particular. Mm -hmm. And so we engaged the Healthy Minds study, and they did a selective sampling of students, and that's where we got our data. So we had a pretty good idea of the scope of what we were looking at, and I think, if anything, this was more confirmatory than presenting us with new and emerging information. It's like, yeah, okay, we're not off base. This is what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. And one of the stats that I think jumped out at people was, I believe it was 50... 50 some odd suicide attempts. In the preceding year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so do we know whether that, I mean, those are self-reported, obviously. Do we know right. whether that's 50 different students or could it be the same, you know, I guess where we're going with this question is if it were 50 different students, that would represent... 2% of the campus population. Which would be about right, um, given national statistics and what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. So I believe it was different students, but I would have to go back and look at the data to verify. Even if it, even if it weren't exactly 50 different students, I think you're still looking at an appreciable number of students who have made attempts in the past year, what they consider to be attempts. Right. And kind of in, in maybe not direct result of this survey, but I know the college has also recently gotten a grant uh -huh. around suicide prevention. Can yes. you talk a little bit kind of in broad pictures about who the grant's from, what what its kind of broad programs are, and then we can uh -huh. get into a few of the more specific sure. ones? Well, and actually we were able to do this survey because we were awarded this grant from SAMHSA, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. And I believe it's known as the Garrett Lee Smith um, Suicide Prevention Act, if I'm getting all of my names and terms right. So we applied for it at the urging, actually, of Julie Ramsey, who was aware of what we were seeing increasingly on campus. So we applied for the grant and were fortunate enough to get it, although at the very beginning I thought, are we fortunate or unfortunate, because it's been a lot of work. Um, but as a result of the grant, we were able to do surveys to make sure that we were that our perceptions and counseling services were an accurate reflection of what was happening on campus to see if there are areas that we might be able to do better in. Um, and then also the grant enabled us to do a lot of education and prevention work. Um, so we've been offering QPR training to students on campus, mental health first aid training, mm -hmm. um, and uh, these programs that have allowed us to be much more active because the grant not only uh, matched us dollar for dollar, but it also allowed us to hire someone within the purview of the grant and that person is able to provide some clinical hours and a lot of time to go into the grant for outreach and prevention. Mm -hmm. Talk about the, the QPR training, because I know a lot of student groups have been engaged huh? to try yes. to go through that. Okay. QPR is a recognized national program. QPR stands for Question, Persuade, and Refer. And it's about a two-hour training, and what it's geared for is to give people a broad overview, just enough to emphasize that this thoughts of suicide and people who are contemplating suicide, they're all around us. It's not that unusual, which is kind of frightening. Um, so it's to get people to um, have a level of acceptance and then also to be able to listen to uh, listen for cues and notice cues that people might be sending out because most people 
um, do send out some kind of alerts in one form or another that they're contemplating suicide. So it's helping people, A, recognize it's out there, B, listen for the sounds, the warning sounds and signs, and then C, knowing how to respond to people in the moment and refer them to someone who can help. So it's not meant to make people experts Mm -hmm. in helping people overcome thoughts of suicide, Mm -hmm. but it is meant to make people aware and knowledgeable about how to refer someone Mm -hmm. for services. And then the mental health first aid training is the longer training. Much more intensive training. Um, It's about eight hours, so it's a significant time commitment. And we were so lucky because actually one of the requirements of the grant is that we try to establish networks, not only on campus, but with off-campus providers. I'm aware as we're talking that I speak a lot with my hands and your listeners aren't (laughs) going to be able to see all of that. So everyone know I'm talking with my hands quite a bit. Um, But in making connections with people off-campus, what we found is that Wellspan Philhaven Mm -hmm. also had a grant, and their grant was to provide mental health first aid training. Um, to those in the area who were requesting it. So we were able to bring that in through the grant Mm -hmm. with someone else's grant. It was so well received that people wanted, more people wanted to engage in it that um, the grant is now funding Olivia Coyle and me to go and actually become mental health first aid trainers so that we'll be housed on this campus and can offer the training Mm -hmm. uh, in subsequent years without having to rely on other agencies. And the other program that I think maybe students have started to see advertisements about is the mental health peer support yes. counselors. Talk mm-hmm. a little bit about how that that works. Well, don't I wish I knew how that works because <laughs> it's going to be our first time doing this. It's something that we had been thinking about for a couple of years, actually, but we just didn't have the personnel and the time available to do it. With the grant and having Olivia here uh, and having her time as part of the grant, and then also Dr. Daisy Chibet is working on the grant with us, um, we started to realize that what our students want more of is human contact, person-to-person contact. Mm -hmm. As we had tried through the grant, um, a variety of technological um, programs or offerings for students, they don't want that. They don't want to go to a website to learn about something. They don't want to necessarily connect with their therapist via a web-based app. They want person-to-person contact. So with what we learned through the grant and some of the things we'd been thinking about, we decided to give this a go. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were very fortunate. That we had actually um, parents um, who donated the money to enable us to do a pilot program for one year. So it has grown out of the grant, but it's actually funded from a parent donation for this first year. And then um, we're going to see how it goes in this initial year, and if it goes well, we'll report it back to the grant, and we may be able to actually apply for another grant. I don't know if they'll get it, Mm -hmm. but apply for another grant for ongoing funding. So that's a long answer to what you probably really want to know, which is how it's going to work. So here's what we envision. Um, We are in the process now of still getting applications from the students, and we thought it would be competitive, and it is competitive. There are a lot of students here who want to help other students, which is lovely to see. So over spring break, we're going to review applications and think about interviews. We'll go through the interview process, and then um, we're envisioning having four students 
uh, who would join us for probably about a week before the start of the fall semester. Mm -hmm. And during that time, we're going to teach them as much as we can squeeze in in that space of time about how to screen for more serious mental illness, uh, and um, in which case our peer supporters would refer those students to the counseling center. And then also how themselves to be able to be good listeners and good counselors to our students. Um, so it's really about teaching them fundamentals, uh, including what they can manage themselves and what needs to be referred to counseling. So we imagine, uh, and this, this is the plan at this point, we imagine that they'll have a number of hours per week in counseling services. So they'll be housed with us where students can just walk in to meet with a peer counselor. So they don't have to make an appointment. Uh, they could if they wanted to, but they can just walk in and meet with an educated peer who wants to help them and uh, see how that goes. Now, as it stands now, we obviously don't have those working yet. So in terms of the availability of the counselors that are currently uh -huh. um, on campus, are, are we able as a college to provide, you know, like free, accessible and like regular ongoing counseling for students here? That is probably a yes and a no. Mm -hmm. um, unlike many of our peers, we have never had to resort to a waiting list. I'm going to knock on wood for that one. Mm -hmm. um, and by that, what I mean is we can generally get students in or offer them an appointment with a week, within a week to a week and a half. Now, sometimes it's a little longer getting in because our schedule doesn't necessarily jive with a student's schedule, so we might not be able to make that work uh, immediately, but we've been able to offer appointments pretty quickly. We also have emergency appointments every day, so if a student has to be seen that yeah. day, we can make that work. Um, what we're finding is that with the demand, it's virtually impossible for us to provide weekly counseling for students. So what we have tended to do is shift to an every other week counseling session, knowing that you know we're always going to have to make decisions based on our clinical judgment, yeah. so it might be more frequently. And some students find that they need less frequent sessions. Um, so we're managing it. Um, I think you know in an optimal world would be able to give unlimited therapy as frequently as students wanted, but it's just not viable. Mm -hmm. How many counselors are permanently full-time on staff right now? You know, it's funny. I should have this memorized, and every time I get asked, I have to add it up again. So we have myself, Michelle Dumois, um, Joyce Galante. You'll count for me as I go. Three. Right? Okay, <laughs> three so far. Becky Colgan, Daisy Chibet. Those are our five full-time counselors. We also have Olivia Coyle, who's working under the auspices of the grant. So she's being paid for really by the grant, but she has accepted a position with us for when the grant ends. And when does the grant end? Oh, another good question. That's probably <laughs> why you do these interviews. <laughs> I, I think the grant is slated to end at the end of this, is it this September? I think it's this September. Okay. So she'll be staying on yes. through the transition. Through the transition. Actually, I take it back. I think it's September one year from now. Okay. But... I can get back to you on that one. How's that? All I know is we're still rolling with it, and there's still a lot of work to do. So uh, Now, in terms of uh, counseling services, I know that there's a bit of a, uh, a perception among students that if you feel as though you're going through a more serious issue that you mm -hmm. want to talk to counseling services about because it's attached to the college, there's mm -hmm. a fear of getting kicked out or suspended. Sure. Um, how true is that, and what would you say to that fear? Mm, okay. Well, what I would say is that 
each of us, because we are licensed, even though the college pays our salaries, um, we work for the client. And so we have to maintain the same level of privacy and confidentiality as if a student were coming to see each one of us in our private practice. Mm -hmm. Now, there are exceptions to that, which is that if we feel that a student's life is in jeopardy, uh, we have to take action. And who wouldn't want us to if we thought someone were in danger of, mm -hmm. of truly harming themselves or someone else? Um, so we have to take our action under those circumstances. And if a student wants us to release information, uh, we can do that. We don't always have to. We try to work with the student and to see what's in their best interest. So it's pretty locked down. Um, and other than that, I mean, incidentally, I suppose someone might see someone walking into counseling services in the same way they'd see somebody walking into their doctor's office. But the information is pretty locked down. So if a student uh, were to come in for, and, you know, voice suicidal thoughts to a point where you believed that they might walk out of here and attempt to kill themselves. That's a very important distinction mm -hmm. because you could come in and say, I'm thinking about suicide. But thinking about it doesn't mean that you're going to the hospital. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people think about it. The difference is getting to the point where where I, as a psychologist, am aware that you're not only are you thinking about it, but you also have a plan in place. And not only that, I think you're going to act on the plan. And if you think, and now you as a psychologist, but also a psychologist that works for the college, uh -huh. what does that process look like? You have seen a student and you believe that they mm -hmm. will leave this office and act on their suicidal thoughts. What do you do? Well, there are several different options. If I feel as though I can put a protective net in place in some way without having to resort to hospital, and that's amenable to a student, we can go that route. So one conversation might be about, what if you go home? What if you're going to go home and stay with your family until you feel a little safer? Mm -hmm. Is that possible for you? If there's no alternative and that we really feel that to keep a student safe, we need to go to the hospital. What we would do is call an ambulance for the student, transport them up to the emergency room. We do that because rather than have a student walk up or have a friend bring them up, because as soon as you call an ambulance and there's an ambulance admission to the emergency room, you're admitted. You're not waiting in the waiting room. Mm. So we have a student transported up to the emergency department where they undergo a second evaluation by another clinician mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that these circumstances really do seem to be as we see them. And then a process unfolds where they talk with the student about um, a possible hospital admission. And in, in, within that process, are other offices on the college uh, contacted about not from counseling services. Okay. Now, we will ask a student, if a student is in, a, in the position to be able to tell us, sometimes students are pretty distraught when, you know, as you think about, you can imagine we're thinking about this. But if a student is capable of answering, um, we might ask, would you like us to let the college know? Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes we don't. And in that case, um, we don't share information. Got it. Now, what does happen is, my understanding is that when we call for an ambulance, our Department of Public Safety monitors police calls. So our Department of Public Safety becomes aware of an ambulance transport. Mm -hmm. um, but it is not through counseling services disclosing information. And that's how, you know, from that process of DPS then, you know, is moving that into other, you know, uh, uh, academics. Right. They might be alerting that. the college. Okay. Right. Cool. Mm -hmm. So we're very particular about really wanting to protect the student's privacy. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, now, switching gears a little bit to the health center. Okay. Um, you know, we've talked about counseling and what uh -huh. counseling services can provide. What can the health center provide for students? Oh my goodness. Well, I wish you were having this conversation with Judy Williams too. She's, <laughs> she's going to be the person who can best tell you. Mm -hmm. um, I, to my, for my understanding, I think health services is pretty well prepared to deal with whatever comes in the door. Mm -hmm. And that might be treating a student themselves and it could be referring to a specialist in the community. So with that being said, there huh? is, again, uh -huh. a, a perception of that, um, you know, uh, if I have a cold and I go to the health center, I'm going to get a, a salt pack and I'm going to leave. Hmm. What would you say to that? <laughs> well, I would say that that is probably entirely possible in that if we have students, you, you probably have heard about how much antibiotics have been overprescribed. Mm-hmm. And that with that, we're developing immunities to antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So in my estimation, now this is my personal opinion, I would much rather have a, provide, a provider say to me, I don't think this merits an antibiotic, than to kind of placate me by giving me an antibiotic that I don't really need. Mm -hmm. So um, my sense of working with Judy and Jennifer and Caroline, our three nurse practitioners, is that they're very good about that and have extensive training in that. But I also know that when we're sick, we feel like we need a medicine, we need something, mm -hmm. and we want that. Um, but I think they're very good at discerning what's appropriate. The health center can prescribe. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And then those prescriptions are filled elsewhere. It's not like we're running our own pharmacy out of Correct. College. Right. Um, switching, well, kind of in the same vein of, of the health center and, and you know, I know that you kind of oversee but don't mm -hmm. directly manage. I'm just wondering whether, to your knowledge, the college has plans, health sorts of plans, in place with respect to this virus that we've all been reading about. Oh, my gosh, absolutely. <laughs> I think Judy Williams has been consumed, as, as has the dean, with thinking about what do we need to do, what do we need to prepare for. Um, so Judy, for example, I know has been working with the State Department of Health mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that we're ahead of and on top of things. And as a matter of fact, got some really great feedback from them that we're ahead of the game in terms of planning. So I think the college is being very mindful and trying to stay on top of it. Um, and um, I think there's also a plan. Now, I'm not involved in these meetings, so this is probably more conversation with those who are. But there's a plan to consider how best to have information readily available on our website. Mm -hmm. So rather than having to go through the, as you know from the website, going different links to get the department information, um, to maybe have that more up front so that students can be very actively aware of it. Um, and as you probably also know, the Gettysburg and recently tweeted out that some students in Rome are considering whether to come home or whether to stay there. So the college has been involved, in, I think, in all aspects mm -hmm. of this. Is there concern with spring break on the horizon that a whole bunch of people leaving campus to go to parts of the country and parts of the world mm -hmm. where, you know, it's they may come into con and then coming back that that could be a risk for the college that you're aware of? I don't know that I have heard it expressed specifically in that way. Of course, I've also been out of the office feeling unwell myself for two days. But I think um, just from past years, anytime students go away to spring break, we're aware they come back. And they tend to come back with viruses and things they caught on the plane um, or however they've traveled. So I'm sure health services are going to be very mindful of that and help students monitor um, where they've been, who they've been in contact with, and what right. their symptoms are. 
I guess last question to you, and, and this can be about either the health, the health center or the counseling center, are there, what are, are there any misconceptions that students or other members, I guess, of campus, for that matter, have that, that you would hope to clear up um, that, that you hear frequently or, or that are otherwise concerning to you? Well, I'd love to hear what you two hear about what the perception is on campus. Um, I think one perception is that you can't go to health services unless you can afford to pay. Mm. And in fact, that's not true. Uh, there is a fee. Judy has been working hard and we've had meetings about how do we manage that. Um, at the same time, we're trying to keep tuition costs down. How do we also manage access to health care? And I think health services has been very open to having students say, I don't have the money and they still get services. We don't want there to be barriers to services at the same time that yes, there is a fee and we're trying to figure out how to manage that. So a big thing I would say is if you need medical care, go to health services. Um, in my experience, both as a student and as someone who's worked on campuses, I think there's a tendency to dismiss services available on campus. I don't know that that's the case here, but I've got to tell you that the nurse practitioners we have are really, I think, terrific. Uh, and bring a lot of experience from settings, as is true for counseling services, from settings outside of the campus community and have worked in medical settings. So they bring a lot of experience and uh, expertise here. Overall, is it the philosophy of, of health and counseling services that the college is prepared to be and, and designed to be kind of the primary provider of health and counseling services for students? Well, that's a tough question, and that has shifted over the years. Um, I think that, I wouldn't say that health services is set up to be your PCP. Mm -hmm. um, it's much more of urgent issues that are coming up, illness that's on campus, but if someone has an ongoing major mental health issue or major illness issue, I think most likely they're going to be working with a home physician or a specialist um, so that there are limits to what can happen there. I think also counseling services, it's been tricky for us because increasingly as students have their own providers at home, there's been an expectation that they can come to campus and continue that level of care. And in past years when demand was lesser, that might have been viable. Uh, so we struggle with that about, for many students, we really are their prime contact, contact on campus, um, but it's hard to be all things to all people, whether it's in health or counseling, and that's hard for all of us to manage, I think, what we would like to provide and what right. we can logistically provide. And the last question, the third time I've said it's the last <laughs> question, but I promise this one's the real last question. Do you, uh -huh. okay. do you um, feel that the counseling service, I mean, there's a perception that counseling services is, uh, among students, I think, that counseling services is either underfunded or understaffed, I think is mm -hmm. really the manifestation of that. Do you feel, I mean, I'm sure everyone would love to hire more people yep, in their department, absolutely. but do you feel that as of today, you do have sufficient staff resources? <sighs> that is a hard one to answer. Um, and it's hard, I'll tell you why it's hard to answer. I would love to have more staff, absolutely. Um, so I can answer that very easily. Every time we add staff, of course, there's an impact on tuition. Um, so everybody's very mindful of that and how much tuition is for students. Um, so even though I'd love to have more staff, I'm aware of the impact potentially for students. I'm also aware that relative to our peers, we're fairly well staffed. I think the rub for us is that we have such a demand on campus and so few resources in the community. 
so that for other campuses we might have you know relatively good staffing we also don't have the resources of mental health um, mental health services in the community so the wait for community services here can be weeks to months to get in so we have become it for a lot of students so all of these things go into the mix so how do I answer that question it's complicated but as I, I tell just about everybody who asks a psychologist you know, a question, the answer is, just expect the answer to be, it's complicated, because we <laughs> love thinking in complexities. Um, so if I could have lots of staff and keep your tuition down and provide what I wanted, that would, that's exactly what I'd love to have. But it's complicated. Well, on that note, we'll, we'll end there. Dr. Kathy Bradley, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's on target for this week. We'd like to thank Kathy Bradley for being our featured guest today. We'd also like to thank the staff of the Gettysburgian and the executive board of WZBT for their ongoing support in this project. Please be sure to subscribe to On Target on TuneIn, Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. On Target is a joint production of the Gettysburgian and WZBT. Our theme music was composed by Diego Rocha, a 2019 graduate of the Sunderland Conservatory of Music. Join us next week. We'll be joined by Shanze Sarwar, who's done some research on the uh, solar panel tariffs that the Trump administration imposed. She did it over the summer as part of the Colby Research Fellowship Program, so we'll be talking about that. And uh, until then, have a great week.